Well, good morning. Let me add my welcome to Pastor Ron's this morning. I invite you to turn to Nehemiah 1. We'll be reading verses 1 through 11 this morning. Before we return to our series on Daniel next week, I, I wanted to spend one more Sunday in Nehemiah. Last week, uh, Pastor Ron described for us the happy ending uh, of a rebuilt wall around Jerusalem in chapter 12, a work that Nehemiah and the people were able to accomplish in only 52 days. It was indeed a joyful celebration that was heard far away from Jerusalem. And rightly so. You see, when Nehemiah arrived on the scene almost a hundred years after the first exiles had returned, Jerusalem was still a pile of rubble. Only the temple had been rebuilt, and even it was a shadow of Solomon's temple. Then there was the wall and the gates. The walls and the, the wall and the gates which protected the city were still in ruins. The city of God was a glorious ruin which prompted Nehemiah to drastic action. Leaving the comforts of the palace in Persia, he returns to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall and the gates. And yet Nehemiah wasn't there just to rebuild a wall. He was also there to rebuild the people. To rebuild the people from the inside out. And God intends to do that in us as well. What might that look like through Nehemiah 1? Let's read the first 11 verses and find out. Hear the word of the Lord. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments, let Your ear be attentive and Your eyes open to hear the prayer of Your servant that I now pray before You day and night for the people of Israel, Your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against You. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen." to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Let us pray. And Father, we are mindful that Your Word is living and active, is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, 
and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And therefore, we, we do have hope, knowing, Lord, that you are aware of what our hearts need and you are able to fill our hearts. And we ask you to do that by your word this day. In Christ's name, amen. I still remember the smell. It had been 11 months since Hurricane Katrina had devastated the Gulf Coast. You may remember that Louisiana and Mississippi bore the brunt of that hurricane, with Louisiana sustaining the heaviest of casualties of around 1,500. At the time, I was pastor of young adults at Central Pres in St. Louis, and we had decided to head down to New Orleans that summer to help with the cleanup efforts. The floodwaters had long ago receded, but the damage they inflicted was still very evident as we drove into town. We pulled into the Holly Grove neighborhood, which was to be our base for the week. As we drove through the neighborhood, we saw familiar markings on the side of houses. They were like the ones that we had seen on TV in the Ninth Ward. Red crosses with numbers in each quadrant indicating that they had been checked for bodies. We saw at least one house where a body had indeed been recovered. As we got out of the van, the smell of 11-month-old mold and mildew festering in houses hit us. We put on our protective mask and went to work. The houses that we gutted and cleaned had been untouched since the floodwaters had rushed through that neighborhood some 11 months earlier. Now, having grown up a short three-hour drive from New Orleans, it was hard to see such a beautiful and culturally significant city laid so low. The glory of that city was now covered in mud and mold, and so too were the lives and homes of many who lived in poverty. Like refugees, hundreds and thousands were displaced and forced to live with other family or friends hundreds or even thousands of miles away. Many of those refugees made that move permanent, yet there were those who returned. The ministry that we worked with and others like them had made the decision to remain as well. You see, their hearts were broken for their city and the loss of shalom. They determined to rebuild and restore the glory of the Holly Grove neighborhood. To rebuild houses, yes, but also to rebuild lives. Nehemiah longed for the same thing to happen in Jerusalem. He had heard the story of Nebuchadnezzar sweeping through Jerusalem like a flood some 150 years earlier. He had heard how Nebuchadnezzar had wiped out many of the people and those who survived were taken to Babylon as captives. This group, of course, would have included Daniel and his friends. He had heard that the exiles had been freed to return to Jerusalem after Persia had defeated Babylon some 70 years later. He had heard that only a small group had gone back to Jerusalem in that first exile return. After some time, he heard of a second wave of exiles returning to help rebuild Jerusalem under Ezra's leadership. Nehemiah, however, remained behind. And with good reason. Nehemiah had found service with the king of Persia, Artaxerxes, as his cupbearer. His was an important position that carried a a great deal of influence and trust. As cupbearer, he was one of the most important members of the king's court. And like Esther, who came later, we can see that he had been placed there for just such a time as this. He now waited for news. News that would come to tell him about how Ezra and the remnant were faring in Jerusalem. 
And that answer came finally from his brother and men from Judah. Now, whether this delegation was coming from Jerusalem or they simply had heard reports about Jerusalem is unclear. But what is clear is that they are looking to Nehemiah for help. When Nehemiah asked about the state of affairs in Jerusalem, his worst fears are realized. They tell him in verse 3, the, the remnant there in the, in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. These men paint a very grim picture for Nehemiah. They describe a ruined city and a ruined people in great trouble and stress and shame. Why? Because there were no gates and there was no wall. Think with me for a second what those gates and wall must have meant for Jerusalem. They obviously meant protection and peace, but they also meant a stable economy. Stable neighborhoods, stable families. They gave people the freedom and ease to to live and to relate to one another without fear. However, without the walls and gates, the people were vulnerable and exposed. They lived in constant fear and anxiety, not knowing who might attack them or harass them. There was no sense of permanence or stability knowing they could be threatened at any point. They were a city that was living on the edge. But they weren't just distressed. It says they were also shamed. You see, the absence of the wall and gates were themselves a sign of weakness and impotence. The radiant strength and glory of the city as well as the people was gone. Those neighboring countries knew that and made sure Jerusalem knew it as well. In fact, they had been rubbing Jerusalem's weakness and impotence in their face ever since the first group of exiles had returned. They were nothing. They were insignificant. They were worthless. It's no wonder the news about Jerusalem brought Nehemiah to tears. We are told in verse 4 that Nehemiah sat down upon hearing the news, probably in something like ashes, and he wept and he mourned. He mourned the loss of glory, the loss of strength, the loss of hope. For days on end he wept. But what the people of Jerusalem experienced is often experienced right here in our own city. There are those in our city who daily experience great trouble and shame. They too are vulnerable and exposed. They too live in fear and anxiety not knowing who might take advantage of them. They too are a people living on the edge. Who are they? They are those in our community who have grown up in generational poverty and don't know any other way to live. They are those who have been trapped by situational poverty who don't have the means or the networks to get out. They are those who have chosen life for their baby but live under the weight of single parenthood. They are children who experience abuse or neglect because of instability in the home. They are young teenage women who are exploited and used by men for their own gratification. There is a great deal of trouble and shame in our own city. There is a grievous loss of glory and flourishing, and we instinctively know this is not the way it's supposed to be. When we think about the great trouble and shame experienced in our own city, does it make us weep? Does it make us mourn? 
Does the thought of our neighbors across town experiencing heartache and grief bring us to tears? Do I allow myself to feel their pain and weakness? Do I allow myself to feel their weakness and their vulnerability? Sometimes. But more times than not, what I really want to do is to shield myself from that kind of pain. I want to build walls around my life, my neighborhood, my zip code, even my church. I want to protect myself from the overwhelming brokenness that is in our city. I want to keep broken people on the other side of the wall so they can't disrupt my comfortable life on this side. As I talk with some of these individuals, their stories are indeed heartbreaking and tragic. Even those who are lying just to get a couple extra bucks for an escape. And yet because their problems are so great and so complicated and and so interwoven, it can feel overwhelming at times. It seems easier not to care. To close myself off. To live within the walls that I create around my life and my neighborhood and my, my church. This, however, is a flawed hope. It's a ruinous hope. And it is destined to fail. Why? Think with me for a moment. Why was Jerusalem destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in the first place? Why didn't God prevent this from happening? In verse 7, Nehemiah tells us it was because the people had repeatedly failed to keep the commandments, the rules, and statutes given by God through Moses. God had been patient and kind with His people in the hopes that it would lead them to repentance. But they had mistaken it for permissiveness. And it wasn't long before their hearts began to grow indifferent and cold towards the Lord. They began to see God's law not as an expression of His love, but as an expression of bondage. In rejecting God's laws, they were rejecting God. Rather than looking to God as the source and protector of their lives, rather than looking to the One who faithfully disciplines and redeems His people from the bondage of their sin, they looked to other saviors, other rescuers. They rejected the covenant-keeping God for earthly kings and powers who promised peace but always made war. They looked to walls made of stone rather than the chief cornerstone to protect them from their enemies. They looked to the temple of God rather than God Himself to be their Savior and their defender. You see, they believed that the wall and the temple would protect them from their enemy outside the wall, when in reality their enemy had always been inside the wall. Isn't that what we think? We think that the enemy is out there trying to climb over the wall and into our reality. But in truth, that enemy is safely inside our own wall, seeking to destroy us from within. When a London newspaper posed the question, what's wrong with the world? The Catholic thinker G.K. Chesterton was reputed to have sent a letter to the editor. In answering the question, what's wrong with the world? He simply said, dear sirs, I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. You see, Chesterton knew that the problem was not out there. The problem was in here. And still, we insist on erecting walls of protection to keep the brokenness out, when in reality, it keeps the brokenness in. How so? Because it ensures we continue to trust in those walls, to trust in those saviors, to trust in those rescuers, 
to save us from the sin out there instead of the sin that is in here. And that's why it's a ruined and flawed hope. The things we look to as saviors cannot indeed save us. They are powerless to stop the brokenness that is within us as well as without. There's not enough money, not enough power, not enough knowledge, not enough relationships, not enough of anything that can help us escape the brokenness because it is not out there. It's right in here. There is only one thing that we can do and that one thing is a glorious hope. Not only does the state of His people bring Him to tears, it also brings Nehemiah to his knees. Beginning in verse 5, Nehemiah cries out to the Lord. He cries out to the Lord because his heart is exploding with grief. Yes, his tears were because of the difficulty God's people were experiencing. But they weren't only for that. Nehemiah was weeping because his heart had been convicted of sin and the brokenness that was inside of him. Nehemiah confessed a corrupt heart against God in verse 7. He confessed a heart that in spite of knowing and experiencing the great and awesomeness of God, that in spite of knowing the covenant faithfulness and steadfast love of the Lord, he had rejected God. He had lived a life that was inconsistent with what he professed to believe. He confessed all the ways that he had failed God by not keeping his commands, rules, and statutes. And yet there is more here. Because he not only confessed his own sin but also the sins of his family and the people of Israel. He asked God in verse 6, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. To me, this is incredible. Nehemiah not only confessed his own sin, he also confessed generational sin. Sin that was committed by previous generations that landed Israel in Babylon in the first place. Now you may be thinking, why on earth would Nehemiah be confessing the sin of a previous generation? After all, he wasn't even alive when Israel was in open rebellion against God. Yes, but you see, he came from that line. He is very much a product of that family and that cultural history. He was raised in it and affected by it. And so it is right that he should own that part of his history and confess it along with his own. Because you see, what was done in the past very much affects his present day life. And the same is true in our own lives as well. Even though I did not grow up in the civil rights era and share my state's racist attitudes toward African Americans, I'm still a product of that era. To say that I am not affected by those racist attitudes would be naive at best and lying at worst. And so it's right for me to not only confess the the racist attitudes of my own heart, I must also confess the heart of a state and nation that wrongly treated men and women who were created in the image of God, but were different because of their skin color. That is my shared history. And through confession, I acknowledge it for what it was and for what role it plays in my life even now. And so as we confess our sin against God and all the ways we have failed Him, we are also confessing all the ways that we have failed our city. We confess our indifference and even our fear to enter into the brokenness 
of our city. We confess all the ways that we have contributed to the brokenness in our city. Ways that we can identify and even ways that we don't even understand. But please hear this. God is incredibly full of forgiveness for His children when they confess. What grace and mercy there is, for it was a costly forgiveness. God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us. To become all the wicked and vile things that we think, say, do, and left undone. So that by His death and resurrection, we might become the righteousness of God. That we might be seen as holy and blameless before God. Because in Christ Jesus, that is exactly who we are. Amazing love. How can it be that my God should die for me? This is a glorious hope for glorious ruins like you and like me. God is making you and I new in Christ Jesus. He is giving us new hearts and new vision and new goals. These were a reflection of His own heart and His own vision and His own goals. He is realigning the things that we care for, the things that we work for, the things that we even live for. But to be honest, sometimes that hurts. As we've just completed a building project here at the church We understand something of the painful process that goes along with building a new building. C.S. Lewis captures that pain when God begins a new building project in us. He says this, Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what He is doing. He is getting the drains right and uh, stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you are not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one that you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage. But He is building a palace. He intends to come in and live in it Himself. God is making us new. And He intends to live there. He is making us a holy habitation for uh, for Him to dwell in. And what's more, as God makes us new, He intends to use me and you in partnership with others all over Lynchburg to make our city new as well. To rebuild our city so that it becomes a glorious city. That's what Nehemiah asked God toward the end of his prayer in verse 9. He reminded God that if his people returned to him, that he would gather them and bring them to the place that he had chosen to make his name dwell there. He was asking God to make glorious the city that bore his name Jerusalem, as well as the people who bore his name Israel. But what's more... Nehemiah asks God to use him to be that instrument of restoration. What a bold prayer. And yet, should we be that surprised? As grateful recipients of the redeeming mercies of God, should we not feel compelled to join in God's work of redeeming and restoring lives? Isaiah had a similar experience to Nehemiah in Isaiah 6. 
The vision he had of being in the holy presence of God was terrifying because of his sin. As he confessed his sin, the seraphim had placed the coals from the altar on his tongue or on his lips as an atoning sacrifice for his sin. Isaiah had gone from being undone by God's holiness to now being undone by God's mercies. When the call went out for one who would be God's messenger, Isaiah, of course, said, Here am I. Send me. But make no mistake about it. This call is not for the spiritually elite. It's not for the spiritual one percenters. This work isn't just for the Nehemiahs and the Isaiahs. It's for the Dick and James and all those in between. He intends to use all of us to join in His kingdom work of rebuilding and restoring a people and a city. And how does He do that? We take a cue from the people rebuilding the wall in Jerusalem. We learn in chapter 3 that the builders worked on the section of the wall that was opposite their house. Isn't that ingenious? Nehemiah didn't spread the workers randomly all over the city. Instead, he stationed them near their homes so they could both work and protect their homes. They bloomed where they planted. Amy Sherman in her book, Kingdom Calling, talks about the vocational power that each of us has been given, including our skills, knowledge and expertise, reputation and fame, influence, networks, platforms and position. She talks about how God has called us to leverage our vocational power as tools to rejoice and renew our city. Let me give you a few examples of how I see that working through Rivermont and through our No Walls Ministry Partnership. From time to time, you'll hear us uh, place a call for appliances, ranges, dishwashers, not dishwashers, um, um, refrigerators and and, um, uh, washing machines and dryers. And uh, James Coleman, who we know better as JC, comes by to collect those appliances and he drops them off at Chuck Hurt's place, an engineer who then distributes them to other engineers in our church who love to fix things and they recondition and repair these appliances and then once they're clean, JC and his young men come back to take those appliances to needy families in our city who don't have appliances. There's another family who started buying houses so that at-risk families renting in unsafe conditions and unsafe places can have a clean and stable and affordable place to live that they can own one day. Of course, there's a lot of work that goes into fixing up these houses. Work that's been done by many of you donating your time and your labor to help rebuild families. We also have another family in our congregation who started a cleaning business. Cheryl took her passion for business and married it with her compassion for women who had formerly been incarcerated. What emerged was Oikos Services. Cheryl says that our goal is bigger than the house we're cleaning at the moment. God's plans are always bigger for our lives. And there are others who are using the vocational power God has given them to help rebuild and restore this city so that it can be a glorious city like the heavenly city that is to come. They are working to make our city a holy habitation for our King when He comes again. Let me encourage you to ask God where He desires to place you. Ask God to help you leverage your vocational power to see how He could uniquely use you to renew renew and to restore our city. I'd love the opportunity to talk to you more 
about how we might discern your calling and place of ministry. May God give us soft hearts that weep not because of the brokenness that's out there, but because of the brokenness that's in here. And may God give us new hearts that yearn for the glorious hope of the gospel and work to bring about God's glorious city to come. Let us pray. Father, this is our prayer. That in Your grace and mercy we might understand some of the depth of our own brokenness and sin so that we might see just how gracious and merciful You truly are toward us. We would ask that we would know more of Your grace and mercy that we might be that towards others. Do this in such a way that You alone receive the glory and honor. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.